is God? What is he like? If I was to take that question and ask a load of people on Lewisham or Bromley High Street, I'd get a load of different answers. I'm sure there would be a, a whole range of different responses. In fact, even if I asked you or said, turn to the person sitting next to you if you're watching it someone else, what is God like? Again, I imagine there'd be a whole range of different answers, different responses on what people would say God is like. And to be honest, it's essentially been the question that we've been endeavouring to answer the last six or seven weeks or so in this series. What is God like? What, what's his heart like? What's he like towards us? And if you were to pick one Old Testament passage from the Bible, you can only pick one kind of passage to answer that question with, then I think that Exodus 34 would be a real, real contender. It'd be right up there in terms of what's a passage that describes what God is like. And that's what we're going to look at today. It's a passage that gets referenced in many other places throughout Scripture. People keep coming back to it. In, in the New Testament, they come back to it because it's, it's, it's so dense in, in how it describes what God is like. And, and so we're going to look at it. We're going to explore it today, looking at that question, what, what is he like? It comes in uh, towards the end of, of the book of Exodus. So Exodus 34 um, comes towards the end of the book. And, and the book of Exodus is a story that um, essentially is about God's people. Moses uh, leading God's people, Israel, out of slavery from Egypt. And they go on this journey for years through the, promise, uh, through the wilderness onto the promised land. And most of it is, is you get this kind of, uh, this section is this kind of journey through the, promi uh, through the wilderness, learning loads of things along the way. And at one point, uh, God reveals himself, reveals his glory to, to Moses because Moses has been saying, Lord, I want to see your glory. And so that's where we're going to read from. And I'd go as far to say this, other than the incarnation, Jesus revealing himself, this is probably the, the greatest revelation of God uh, in the Bible. And so we're going to read from Exodus 34, starting at verse 1, and we're just going to read the first nine verses. It says this, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I'll write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds gaze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. He rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and he worshipped and he said, if now I have found favour in your sight, O oh Lord, please let the Lord go into the midst of us, for it's a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and sin, and take us, 
for your inheritance. This is the word of God. So, so this passage begins with Moses being sent by God up to the mountain. He says, get up early, take two tablets, stone tablets, get up there on your own. No one else can be about. And then he's going to descend in a cloud and reveal his glory to him. And, th and, th and that is essentially what, what happens. And um, it's funny because Moses, this is not the first time he's been up the mountain. In fact, he's had to go up before. The, the very fact he's going up twice uh, is because before he went up to the mountain and he, and he takes these stone tablets and he writes down covenants and, and promises of God. But while he's up there doing that, the people of Israel are getting the ump, getting impatient, and they start to forge out a golden calf for themselves, idols to worship. And Moses comes down, he's so angry at what they're doing is he smashes the tablets. I always think, I don't know if he, if he knew that he'd have to do them again, but he smashes them. And then in the end, they're like, he's kind of frustrated. So God says, right, I want you to go back up the mountain. And the very fact that God is asking him to do that reveals a bit of the character of who God is. He's the God of second chances. We didn't get it right the first time. We're going to go up and we're going to write the same things again. He's, he's gracious and even allowing them an opportunity. They mucked it up the first time. He said, no, we'll do it again. And so we, we see kind of, even that is a, a kind of revelation of what he's like. And so he comes up and, 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 and he descends in it and he basically shows Moses his glory. Moses has been saying, Lord, show me your glory. And he shows him his glory. And so let's, let's pause right there. What is God's glory? Another question. If I took that to Lewisham High Street, I'd get some real answers. What is, what, what, if I said that to you, what, what image does that conjure up in your mind about God's glory? When I, I, I punched it into Google this week and it, you just got loads of images of like these like sunsets and, and, and kind of these amazing sort of landscapes and kind of the sun piercing through the clouds, that kind of image. Maybe you think of a, a worship setting when there's a church gathering and there's just like amazing moment, maybe kind of just worshiping God together and you think, wow, the glory, his presence is, is so amongst us. That, that, that question, in essence, what, what is God's glory? It's kind of like, what makes God, God? Who is he? What, what, what makes God, God? And in this passage, in this moment, in this glorious mountaintop moment, God's descending in the cloud, his glory's there. He reveals to us what his glory's like. And he reveals it in five statements about who he is. He begins with saying, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, he says my name. This is, this is who I am. I am the Lord, the Lord. He repeats it twice. He's emphasizing it. And so Moses is like, right, this is who God is. And then God reveals, he says, we're going to look at five things that he then reveals about himself, about what his glory is like. And the very first one is probably the most important. The first two words uh, that God describes himself as after he reveals himself in this cloud of glory, Yahweh, Yahweh, what's the two things that he described himself as straight off the bat? He says, I'm God, merciful and gracious. It was the first two things he says, verse six, I am merciful and gracious. That's how he wants to be described. It's similar to what he said in the previous chapter, Exodus 33, 19. Moses, please, Lord, show me your glory. And, and he says, and, and part of his response is he's, when he shows you his goodness, he says, my goodness will pass before you. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And I'll show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. 
God's glory is associated with his mercy and his goodness and his graciousness. That's what he says, I'm, I'm gracious, I'm merciful. You see, I often think that our kind of deepest tendency or instinct for most people is to think of God as this kind of thundering, judge kind of gavel swinging, uh, kind of judgment pronouncing figure who's waiting just to correct you and, and, and rebuke you for your waywardness and this kind of God full of thunder and judgment. That's how often people will kind of think of God, this booming voice that comes down. Almost like that kind of, you know, like a headmaster. Well, I don't know what your, your sort of, uh, your head teacher was like in school. My, my, my school, Mr. Murphy, I got to know him in, in later years and, and, and we kind of repaired our relationship. <laughs> but he was old school. I know sometimes head teachers today, you know, might be approaching kind of, you know, you, you got kind of, Look after the kids, be nice, maybe be their friend, their well-being's important. I'm not going to make any comment on that. All I'll say is that my, uh, my, my headmaster, he was old school and everyone in the school, I mean everyone was scared of him. It was like, you, you, you didn't want to mess with him. And uh, I remember there'll be times where the school band, if you grew up in, uh, in, in London, in, anywhere in sort of the 2000s, you'd have known that kickers were the thing to wear at school. Like everyone wanted kickers. And uh, I remember they banned kickers, but everyone's like, no, nah, I want to wear my kickers. And you'd walk around the corridors, peering around, thinking, and you'd ask people, is Mr. Murphy there? Because you knew if he got a sight of you, whenever he saw you, he would inspect you up and down. Check every part of your uniform, every part of what you're wearing or what you're carrying or what, you, what, you, what your appearance is like. He was, and he would kind of like look into you, just waiting to bring a correction. Or he would come out on the school playground and he would stand there and you'd kind of see this towering figure and, and, and it was almost like he was, he would, as soon as he saw one thing, he would shout. He'd often say your second name, McNamara. And he was like, wow, you kind of, you knew if Murphy's on the prowl, you, you're in trouble. Um, and, and I had a few run-ins with him over the years. And sometimes people, they almost think God is like that, like this kind of figure that like you turn up at church on a Sunday and he's, he's just examining you, kind of trying to find the faults or, or find the thing that you, you've not done well or that's out of place. Or he's kind of just there waiting, watching, and as soon as you do something wrong, he just wants to come and shout and scream at you and tell you off. But that's not the image that, that we get here. He, the image we get is one being gracious and merciful. One who, who's kind. In fact, it reminds me of, um, I guess, Psalm, Psalm 138 is a brilliant description of it because it talks about the greatness of God, the glory of God. It says this in verse five. They shall sing of the ways of the Lord for great is the glory of the Lord. Like his glory is great. But then in the next verse, it says, but though the Lord is high and the Lord is other, wholly different, he regards the lowly and the haughty he knows from afar. It's this image that though he is great and glorious, his glory is revealed in him being gracious and regarding the lowly and being merciful. And so that's the first descriptor that we get of God in this passage. He is gracious, he is merciful. The second one that we get goes on, it says that in, in, in the next thing, the next verse it says, he's slow to anger, still in verse six. He's slow to anger. Uh, uh, that kind of slow to anger um, is, is kind of two words in, in the Hebrew, it comes from two different words. Errol, which means uh, kind of uh, long, 
when it comes to distance or time. So the word eril means long distance or time. And then the other part of the word apium is, is basically it's the Hebrew word for nostrils. And so the actual kind of framing of the word means long nostrils. I was saying, my dad had been an insult in you know, my school day. Someone said, are you, are you long nostrils? Which is why I sometimes like the, the King James Version and others refer to it as, as God of long suffering. Yeah, you kind of got this long suffering. This one says slow to anger. Uh, and, and the best way to kind of describe that, I guess, would be um, if you think of like a bull. Uh, I, don't, anyone ever, I don't know if you've ever seen bullfighting. I've not seen it in person. You've seen it on, on the telly or YouTube or whatever. Think about bullfighting bulls. They're kind of raging bull. They, they get angry. They've got these kind of really short nostrils and steam and smoke comes blowing out of them. It's like, whoa, this is crazy. And so you think of that, that kind of anger, these short nostrils. Well, God is... God is the opposite of that. God is, 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 is the very opposite. You see, he isn't kind of pent up with anger and frustration. Some people, they actually think of, of God in, in this way, almost like he is kind of, um, his anger is like spring-loaded, kind of just pulled back, ready to just kind of be unleashed, ready to just come and bring his judgment and anger on us. But this image is the complete opposite. In fact, what's spring-loaded is his divine mercy and grace. He's, he's loaded back and he's ready any opportunity just to, to spring it upon us. That's, that's what he's like. That's his nature. He's, he's slow to anger. He's not quick-tempered like many of us. In fact, Dane Ortland, who, who, who wrote the book Gentle and Lowly, you'll know that we've, we've kind of recommended it uh, through the series talks about this and, and he says something quite amazing that I, I just want to, I want to read to you talking about God's anger. He says that God, he says, he needs no provoking to love, only to anger. Whereas we need no provoking to anger, but only to love. God is not easily angered. He's slow to anger. That's the second thing that we get about him. The third thing is he says that, that he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I love that description. God is faithful to his people. God is, is he, he's faithful. He, he, you know, he won't let you down. He won't give up on you. He won't cast you out. He won't throw the towel in on you. Some of us have been let down by people that we wouldn't say are faithful. Maybe a friend, maybe a family member, maybe a colleague. Oh yeah, they let me down. God won't let you down. He's faithful. He endures. And his kind of commitment to us, you know, his love is steadfast. And, and, and his commitment to us, it doesn't just exist. I love the description, it abounds. His commitment to you as an individual to be faithful and to be loving doesn't just exist as this thing, but it abounds. And so that's the third thing that we get, that he is he's steadfast. His, his love and his, and, and his faithfulness is, is steadfast to us. And then the fourth thing, it says, you carry on just in the next verse now. Verse 7, it says that he will keep his steadfast love for thousands. Many versions will just say for a thousand generations. That's basically what it means. That his love goes on for a thousand generations. Remember to, I was thinking a little while ago, me and Sylvie, we got a little fireplace in the front room and uh, we have to get it clean. And so this chimney sweep comes around. It turns out that the business I actually went to school with, with a son in, in the business. And it's his family business that they said has been in the family for 300 years. Amazing, it's gone down from, from father to son. 
to another son, to another generation, from father to son, father to son, father to son. 300 years he's been in this family. And I always think that is amazing, but there's gonna be a day, right, where in the end, one of the sons is gonna turn around and say, I don't wanna be a chimney sweep. This has been an amazing business, I wanna do something else. It will not last forever, that sort of generational thing doesn't last forever. And that's the same with anything, dynasties and kingdoms, empires, they don't last forever. In the end, a kind of one generation will pass on to another, but in the end, it will wear out. Well, this is not like that. He's saying for a thousand generations. It's not 300 years, this is thousands of generations. And that thousands, it means it's ongoing. It's not like after a thousand, it stops. It's just ongoing, passed down, passed down, passed down, passed down. So you, you can't outlive it. You can't outrun it. His, his faithfulness, his goodness, his love. You, you can't outrun it and live it. That's what he talks about, his steadfast love. I don't know if you've got any kind of heirlooms in the family or anything like that. It's not really like that, anything in my family that I know of. But there's things that get passed down, don't you, from generation, you know, like, yeah, this was my great-grandfather's and I'm going to give it to, to, to my kids and I'll give it to their kids. You think, well, what's the thing that God inherits for all of his people from generation to generation? His steadfast love. That's what he passes down. That's what goes down from one generation to another generation. His steadfastness, love and faithfulness. And so we see that as our, as our fourth thing. His steadfast love and his faithfulness. And then the fifth and the final one is maybe the most difficult. Because he says he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. So he, he forgives us for our wrongdoing. But by no means clears the guilty. What, what does God mean by that? Essentially, God is showing here that the guilty won't go unpunished. I preached last week about how God is just and true. I preached about the kind of the, the judge in, in, in the law court must punish his son because of justice. This is essentially what he's saying. God is a God of justice. He's a God who, who the, the guilty won't go unpunished. And, and we can see that sin can last a legacy through generations. You, you reap what you sow. Galatians 6 talks about that. You, you reap what you sow. But also, we know that that's just a reality that, that sometimes sin will impact a generation below or a generation after that, three, four generations. We're seeing that legacy even in our, in, in our current society, you see that, where the sins of a generation before are impacting his legacy in that and it goes through generations. And the guilty won't go unpunished because, and, and those that basically don't repent and turn will be punished, will be judged before the Lord. He's just, perfectly just, perfectly true. And it's really important that it says this, because if, if you don't get that, sometimes you could get the impression that, that God could be mocked. God can't be mocked. God's not a pushover, just a big softie. You just, you know, kind of, yeah, you can just offend God and do what you like against him, but he's still gracious. No, no, he wants to make it clear. He's gracious and compassionate and merciful and loving and kind to us. Yeah, the guilty will still be punished. You can't mock God. You can't just disgrace him without repentance, without turning back to him. He, he wants to make that really clear, that he will forgive the sins. He says, he'll forgive your sins and iniquity, but the guilty will be punished. But one of the things that we must remember is that this goes on for three or four generations, but the verse just before tells us that his faithfulness, his love, goes on for a thousand generations. People's sin may impact their great-great-grandchildren but the love of God will eclipse that. The love of God will outweigh that. The love of God will go on for a thousand generations. It still outweighs it. The love of God that just keeps going and going and going. 
And so, so, so these are the five things that we see of God in this passage, this great revelation. But even then we know that this revelation is only really in part. We only see a glimpse of it. The Bible says that Moses cannot see the face of God and live. He, he, he sees but a glimpse, it's kind of a foretaste. But, but we've now seen the full glory of God in Christ. This is what John 1 talks about, that the word has become flesh, that the, 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 the Lord has taken on flesh. We've seen the face of God. Behold, we've seen it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Come from the Father with grace and truth. When John is writing those things in John 1, he's got Exodus 34 in mind. That the Lord has come and he's come in grace and truth. That, 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 that he's come, that, that, that it was, these are the things that were marked God out in Exodus 34, that he was, he, was, he was merciful and gracious and he was faithful and true. And these are the things that John picks up in John 1, that the, the word has come in flesh. He's come from the Father in grace and truth. And so we see it there in John 1. And you also see it kind of again in, in Mark 6. Is that story in Mark 6 where the, the, the disciples get sent out, out on a boat and Jesus is observing them and watching them and, and kind of seeing them go. And then in the end, it, it says that he goes out on the water and he says he intended just to pass them by. I think that's a strange phrase. What does he mean pass them by? And this is not the sort of passing by like you might do on a motorway. You know, you overtake someone, you just pass by them. I'll be careful that illustration. I confessed to speeding last week. I'm not a speeder, just to put that out there. You can really trust me. It's just one occasion. But you think, this is not the passing by he's talking about. He just passes him by. No, the, the, the phrase is loaded. The phrase actually is, 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 is Mark has got in mind here, Exodus 34. The, 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 you know, four times in Exodus 33 and 34, he talks about God passing by, his glory passing by. And the Greek, the Septuagint, which is the Greek, Old Testament, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but the Greek version of it, the phrase that's used for this passing by is the same phrase that Mark uses to talk about passing by in Mark 6, that the Lord passes by. And so he's giving complete reference to this again, that, that, that God in Exodus 34 passes by in grace and truth and mercy and Christ himself comes and he demonstrates grace and truth. You see, Moses soaring wind and cloud, you know, the wind and the voice. The Lord reveals himself, his graciousness and his kindness and his compassion and his goodness in the wind and with his voice. But we've now seen it in flesh and blood, in Christ. He has revealed himself again and both convey what he's like, both convey what his heart is like towards us. If you like, Moses saw it in 2D. This kind of image, you, you see it in part, you're like, wow, this is amazing. You kind of see a 2D image, but then suddenly you see a 3D version. Blows your mind. You get the full perspective. You see it all. You're like, wow, this is what it really looks like. This is amazing. In Exodus 34, God tells us, he told Moses his heart in words. Well, in Christ, he has shown us his heart and he's proved it when he goes to a Roman cross and lays down his life in love for us, his people, descends into the darkness, that we may then rise with him into the light, that we may know his graciousness and his kindness, that we may know his mercy and his forgiveness and his love, and that we may know the goodness of God through every generation as we follow him and live for him 
the one who is, who is gracious and merciful, who is faithful and true. Let's pray together before we worship the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that, that he came to demonstrate. Lord, he, he showed us in his flesh and blood the, the, the goodness of God, the graciousness of God. Lord, and thank you for this revelation that you've, you continue to reveal yourself to us as being merciful and kind and compassionate and true. And Lord, may we know more of that revelation in these days. May we know more of the grace of God. May we know more of it, of what it's like, of what you're like, how you are towards us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.